ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Kit Krugman. She's the Managing Director of Creative and Strategic Transformation for Co-Collective's Organization and Culture Design Practice. Today, with the post-pandemic and great resignation as a backdrop, we're going to take a deep dive into work-life balance. Hi, Kit. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. In previous episodes, we've delved into the importance that Gen Z and millennials are placing on mental health and how this has translated into both their expectations about their workplaces and their plans for their careers, especially in our new, I won't say post-COVID, but rather managed risk COVID environment. In your work, you have a window into different organizations and see how different companies are charting their way forward. Starting at 60,000 feet, what are some of the trends you're seeing with regard to hybrid work? Since we've had the pleasure of working with so many organizations across the spectrum, what we've done is we've done organizational-wide surveys. What we're seeing in the organizational-wide surveys in terms of the expectation from employees is the question that you're asking around mental health is a part of the conversation. There is not a survey response that we don't get back that's asking the question around what is the organization doing to invest in employee well-being and mental health? Is that because you have slugged that in as one of the questions or is that volunteered by them? Volunteered by them. We we obviously have done some work specific to mental health and well-being, but oftentimes it's more frequently in answer to the question, if the organization could change or invest in one thing, what would that one thing be? That's so interesting. I'm particularly interested in how companies are engaging with their workforce on the topic. And you've surveyed the whole organization. Is that something that they came to you and said, we want to do this, or you said you should do this? I I really want to break it down to employee involvement, communication, and then how things are assessed. So, So how does that look? So as a part of our process, we always recommend an organizational survey and usually organizational wide. And the reason that we do that is we approach our work from a systemic standpoint. So even if the organization is asking us to do something like an org design where it's really about structure, we still do a systemic analysis. So looking at all the different component parts like culture, system structure, because our belief is you cannot pull one lever without needing to adjust another. That said, one thing that we do discover with our clients, we often ask, have you recently done a survey? Do you run surveys every week? What is the level of survey fatigue at the organization at this stage? And is there data that we can lean on in order to glean the systemic insights that we will need in order to inform our work? How often should a company be querying their employees? It's a great question. And I really think like most things in organizational design, it depends on the company. Mm. It really, it really matters how frequently your employees want to be engaged. And you have to strike the right balance between survey fatigue or engagement fatigue and making sure that you're listening actively and providing multiple forums for folks to give organizational feedback. That is sort of what I'm thinking about because being asked a question, however many times, 
you start saying, well, have you changed anything? I mean, you know, the thing is like any survey question, it's like, well, what is your action item coming out of this survey question? What are you going to do with the information once you get it? And when you find a company that is surveying pretty frequently, is that do they tend to to do it well? Is this something that people do well on their own or that you probably you should have somebody help you structure this kind of thing? So survey fatigue turns into survey cynicism when <laughs> yeah <laughs> when organizations aren't taking action because one of the one of the challenges to your point is that if employees are, feel like they're not being heard and there's no action that follows that feedback then they're going to stop giving the feedback and or they will feel deeply disempowered so i've i've shared the feedback leadership hasn't acknowledged it the organization isn't taking action does my voice even matter which is even more damaging. Right. So you can end up thinking you're doing a good thing, but then you get these results and you don't really know what to do with them. And so you sit on them and that can actually cause a problem you maybe weren't anticipating or planning. You started out with the best of intentions, but end up in a, in a bad place. How much assessment of remote work performance like around... I feel like I'm doing my job better from home. I feel like it doesn't matter if I'm in the office or not, or I really need to be with other people or the frequency. Is that part of the assessment in terms of really looking at, we have a different way we could do things. How did we do doing them that way? When we do a systemic analysis, we always have a bucket of questions around ways of working. And so frequently, of course, especially when we've done work around future work, that section of questioning leads us to asking questions about productivity, about the ways that you're working in, whether they are supporting you doing your best work and driving impact, et cetera. I will say that so far in the work that we've done, we have not discovered a significant dip in productivity. If anything, we've seen increased productivity, increased results, but we have seen a significant dip in employee well-being, mental health, and connectivity relationships with other employees. It's interesting when we think about the structure of work. One of the things in conversations I've had with people is why we worked in offices and how it was modeled on a post-industrial revolution factories and the machines were in one place. So we all got in one place. And then this is a pattern of how work is done. And do you need to all be together? Does the manager need to walk around? Did the manager, when you were all together, walk around or did they sit in their office having conference calls? You know, what what did it look like? How is the work done? I think some work benefits from the sparkiness that you get of everybody together. And some work would benefit sometimes, but not others. How do you tease out, wow, we just had a pandemic or we're in a pandemic or things are kind of better, but not 100% from mental health, mental health, like what the business can control, what is contributing to mental health that the business actually has a a hand in? Yeah, I think that that is such an important distinction. Uh, One of the things that we feel very strongly about is organizations are part of the social fabric and have a responsibility to the communities that they build, of course. But there's no organizational system that exists without influence and impact from the external environment. And in the case of a pandemic, there's anxiety in the system. There's a ton of anxiety in the system. There's a ton of isolation in the system Mm. regardless. And so every single employee is subject to that context, regardless of the organization that they work at. It it has been a very challenging 18 months, as as I'm sure we're all on the same page about that. The, The short answer is yes, organizations can and should adapt to the external environment and the external pressures. 
but mm-hmm. there is no way for an organization to be the sole solve, the sole community, the sole remedy for the mental health challenges that we face today. And should it be businesses are created to accomplish something, their raison d'etre is not their employees' mental health. It can be a component that they care about it, but it isn't their central reason for being. They were created to accomplish a thing. And this is especially something I think about in the context of service. You know, 77% of our GDP is in the service sector. Mm -hmm. And in service sector businesses, you live and die by your clients' project deadlines and their budgets. And so budgets are what they are. And if they're low or tight, schedules can get aggressive. And sometimes they're too aggressive. If you're a smaller business serving a larger business, you sometimes are in a position of navigating the ground between a rock and a hard place. Are there ways that you recommend businesses deal with that? So I think you're asking all the right questions around what is the obligation of organizations and employers to mental health, et cetera. And I I view it slightly differently in the sense that I think of most things as virtuous cycles, right? So when we talk about things like diversity, I, I always think about the business case for diversity as well. I think about the business case for mental health. If you have an employee who is working at a lower capacity because they're anxious, they're distracted, they're not able to work at their best. Ultimately, that impacts the bottom line, the business objectives, the things that you're trying to create. I don't look at the moral argument exclusively to say, you should be caring about your employees' mental health. I think about it as not only, you know, if you are a leader, I think you do have a responsibility to care about the people that work for you and their well-being, but also caring about their well-being benefits the organization. Absolutely. But the question becomes, there is only so much money in in the system, right? And so so a client comes and I'm thinking sort of somewhat about the IOTSE new contract that was signed with the producers. And one of the objections was, you know, all of these productions, they're really under budget. And so people are working these outrageous hours. And what you have is a production company either gets a job or doesn't. And this is the money. This is what it is. And how do they deal with that? What are some ways that they can push back if deadlines are too aggressive? This isn't Mm. something that's just a function of entertainment. Certainly consultancies will run into this where the client doesn't provide the necessary inputs, but wants the DAC when it wants the DAC. Yeah. So I love, I love how concrete that question is. And, and let me speak from personal experience in co- at Co-Collective. We are a consultancy. We work with clients. We're in the client service business. We, of course, confront that challenge every... With I'm sure you every do, which is why I we run into, um, you know, where the, the question is, what are the budgetary constraints and what do we feel like we can achieve against that budget? Mm-hmm. What I will say is the way that we have grappled with that is that we're always honest about what we believe it will take take to get the job done to the fidelity that we believe the client needs. And then it's a conversation about what can be removed, what can be expedited, what we can lean on our client partner to take care of, what deliverables we could potentially remove. In the context of organ culture, a lot of times that looks like even rethinking the approach because we believe in co-creation with our client partners. We will say, okay, if we were to train the trainer on how to do a co-creation session, are you? do you have the capacity to take on co-creation sessions? But what I won't do as a team leader is commit my team to something that sends them to 
puts them in a situation that would challenge their mental health for the cost of the business. Right. That makes sense. So what about an employee? How can an employee, if they're feeling the crunch, you've, you've set up what you believe is a fair boundary, but I'm an employee and I feel that it's too much. How can I create a boundary or share that upward without putting my career at risk, without being that annoying squeaky wheel? Yeah, it's really tough. You know, you're talking about something that I find very important to talk about, which is power dynamics and Mm -hmm. what the influence of power dynamics on being able to speak truth to power, et cetera. And we always advocate, and I personally always advocate for leaders, you have an obligation to create the space for your employees to come to you, to ask the questions about what boundaries do we need to set, to charter with your teams, what boundaries do we want to respect for each other. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like there is obviously the individual obligation to model that at every level to push back and say, listen, I, here's, here are my constraints and my boundaries in order for me to protect my mental health. I can speak personally. I have a nine month old at home. I have to sign off at 6 PM to do dinner and bath, bath time. And that's something that's really important to me. But as a result, that is, that does mean that sometimes I check emails afterwards and I've communicated to my team and, and to our organizational, my, my peers at the leadership level, that those are my boundaries and my constraints. And I block my calendar accordingly. So that's your constraint and you're answering emails at six. Does that mean your employees who maybe have different, they have to respond to those emails or do you not expect that? One of the things I'm a big advocate of delay send. If I send an email, the only time that I can work is on a Saturday evening because of my childcare obligations and my family, then I delay send that email until 8am on Monday. Because it's a great tip that that is a way that you don't stress out your employees who then all of a sudden feel this obligation to be responsive. Yeah, because you can say all day long, you don't need to respond to this email when I send it at 9 p.m. But the power dynamic is there. If a leader sends an email at 9 p.m., you're going to respond or feel like you have to respond. And so to me, that is where the obligation of leadership to model boundaries is critical. Fantastic. I think that's a really great thing for people to remember when they are supervising people that what are the boundaries we've established and how do we respect them in deed, not just in word. One of the things that is interesting around this whole concept of business balance is in surveys of Gen Z and millennials, as came out in your surveys within organizations, mental health is super important. And one of the things that young consumers, young workers, when they're talking more broadly about their employment plans, their desires, they talk about wanting to work entrepreneurially and also wanting to work for smaller businesses because they believe that this will allow them to achieve work-life balance and better mental health. Do you think that that's a realistic expectation? Well, ironically, it's often the smaller businesses that struggle more because they have less resources. So, you know, for instance, organizations like Facebook have benefits and uh, support that smaller organizations can't yet afford to have. And so I think it really depends on the company, but the best thing you can do is be transparent with your employees to say, this is what we can and cannot afford in our business model. Are you willing to sign up for that? And are you willing to help work towards something together that if the company grows, here's what we would be able to provide. One of the hardest things as an entrepreneur is to create work-life balance for an entrepreneur, for them in themselves. Do you have tips for entrepreneurs to carve out that space? Yeah, that it's, it's so hard. I mean, you know, I've, I've been an entrepreneur in the sense that I 
built the Oregon culture practice. And, you know, those, those years were very challenging for me personally, because when you are bootstrapping something, when you are building something and you need to have a vision for it and you need to build and scale a team, those are years where you have to put in the work. And that's just real. I mean, I think that's realistic. I think that that's honest. And it's not that, oh, Kit, you weren't being work-life balancey, wagging finger at you. No, this is just it. This is what it took to have coherent focus to achieve Mm. your goal. And is that, is that a hard reality? Or do you think it's, it is something that you could have done differently? You know, I think there's, um, I have two, (laughs) two sort of conflicting thoughts on this and I'll just share them both with you. One is I believe there are different seasons of your career. Um, there was a season in my career where I worked all the time. Um, and there have been seasons in my career where I have been able to have a little bit more balance, more flexibility. I, I don't think that the ultimate destination is being able to have everything at once, (laughs) but I do think that time investments should pay off. Meaning if there's a season in your career that you're putting in more work, that should manifest in an opportunity to have some flexibility later. At least that's how I view it for myself personally. Working towards scale, building even a practice within a business is working towards being able to have a business that can sustain a bigger team, which provides you new opportunities for leadership, new opportunities for scaling the business, new opportunities for your own personal and professional growth. And that looks different. Should people put a time on that where they start to see return, you know, or Mm. else maybe they need to reassess? Is there something that people should think about? Again, it depends on what you want, right? Some people get a ton of joy out of working and some people get a ton of joy out of being able to completely shut off. Mm -hmm. I think there's no ideal state for everyone, Mm -hmm. but I do think that the other side of the coin on what I was just saying is that I do think that in particular in the US, our expectations on what excellence looks like in terms of how much you should work is very all-consuming. I think that that model is slightly broken. I think our expectation, and this is where I'm going to contradict myself, that folks need to, at the beginning of their career, really, really, really burn themselves out in order to get to those leadership levels where they're able to uh, have a little bit more scale isn't necessarily the way that it should be. You worked in a culture, you existed, and this was the model. I think the great resignation is a rejection of this. You know, the younger generations who are like, hey, you know what? This isn't fun. And I don't necessarily know when the payoff is going to happen. I don't know that this trade-off is one I want to take, especially if you have a context of a pandemic and you say, you know what? Everything can turn on a dime. And then if that dime turns while I'm still in my you know, slogging away phase, what have I done? What is my life? Where, where am I? I think the other thing that is interesting is you're mentioning our expectations of excellence. And also this goes to our expectations of our workplaces and this survey about what we would like employers to provide for us. How, when we have employees say they want investments in well-being, they want investments in mental health, what are the concrete things that they want, question one. And question two, 
do those concrete things actually deliver mental Mm. health benefits? So I think a lot of times they think they want days off. They think they want better work-life balance, but that's a very abstract concept, to be honest. It's not concrete. And I was just going to say, so what does that even mean? Is that days off or is that, is that a hard out at five or six? What is, what is work-life balance? I think oftentimes they think they want additional resources too, which may or may not help, but in, in my in my mind, a lot of this actually doesn't move the needle when the expectation is still that in order to succeed, you need to be operating in a way that burns you out. Right. And so that, I think that the the two things you said, what is work-life balance really truly to people? What does that mean internally in your gut? Like I've achieved work-life balance. This is, you know, this works for me. What does that mean? And then also what resources do make a difference? What things do help people? So one of the ways that we talk about work-life balance at Co-Collective is we say it's not about work-life balance. It's about, it's about work-life boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important distinction because having, listen, every time that I step away from my work and I read a book or I go to a conference or spend time with my family, those, or I go paint or do something completely creative and different. Those are the moments when the synapses start firing for me. Those are the moments when I get become intellectually and spiritually refreshed in order to bring my best thinking to the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And those moments require boundaries. If everything becomes, I'm thinking about work, I'm dreaming about work. I'm, um, texting my work co-workers before I go to bed, those are the places where you start to just be living one kind of unilateral life. And I think that's where it becomes really problematic. Well, sure. Cause then everything is a fractal of the same. It's just, it's exactly. just a, a permutation of those same tools, those same things, those same things. I work-life boundaries. I love that. And I think that that should be a replacement phrase for work-life balance, because I think balance as for myself, as a, a working woman and a working mother, I often felt that I was not, I was, I was struggling as an entrepreneur. I was struggling as a mom and mm-hmm. it was difficult to feel successful. And I think mm-hmm. that that's an honest thing, which <laughs> I've had to, it's taken me a while to be like, Hey, you know, here's where I am. And this is the truth. The truth is it was hard. The truth is it didn't feel balanced to me. And I wish that I had had a conversation with somebody like you where it was redefined as boundaries. Mm, That is actually the key phrase there. Um, So when you're talking to businesses and they get these surveys, how do you communicate? I mean, presumably this is you head up the uh, organization culture and design practice. So presumably you share this with your clients. You know, this is what the employees think they're wanting. But if we really are helping them to move the needle, this is really probably what would make a difference in their lives. How do companies, how can they successfully communicate these things? Hmm. So one thing I just want to both respond to what you're saying and, and just touch on, which I think is really important, is I think that it's really important as leaders to challenge our own biases about what successful working looks like. Because even the most enlightened leaders, even every, you know, and this is across every organization that we've worked with, leaders still have a challenge today 
not seeing people who are willing to work late nights, early mornings, et cetera, as what success looks like. So how do we shift to looking at results and seeing results as what success looks like, as opposed to how early you show up, whether that's now on Zoom or in mm-hmm. the office um, and and not seeing the requests that that employees are making as asking too much or as entitlement. Mm-hmm. That's a really important, we need to all check our biases there. Just because we worked a certain way does not mean that the folks coming up need to work the same way. It's the paying dues problem. Mm-hmm. I yep, paid my a- dues. I, I school uphill both ways. Ah. Yep. Yep. Well, you see this happening in, you know, in the medical profession in particular, the, um, one of the things that I've always pondered at, uh, back in the day, I briefly considered being a doctor. And one of the challenges was that, you know, you, the, you have to be in, working so hard around the clock in, without sleep in really difficult residency. And who wants for their doctor to be that way? Not 10 me. years. Yeah. <laughs> I would like a well-rested doctor. Thank you very much. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But any, any system systems like that are perpetuated by people believing that because they did it, others need to do it as well. Unpaid internships. We had the same problem with that, right? Mm-hmm. Maternity mm-hmm. leave, paternity leave, all of the, the more progressive systems that we're trying to put in place are hitting up against resistance most frequently from the folks who had to experience the worst case scenario. There's some really interesting data about the the fact that the folks resisting maternity leave extensions were actually working women who had not had access to that benefit. It's interesting for myself coming from a small business, the issue I had was paying and holding a job, a small business, holding a job for somebody is very challenging. Just you've got to recruit somebody, you've got to put them in, then you can't guarantee them that they're going to have a long-term job, but they might, because you don't know, because the person may or may not come back. And it is a really hard burden. A larger business may be able to split a person's job among other people and hold it that way. And I felt very much that if society valued Mm -hmm. Uh, childcare, that there should be a across the board tax that it could fund everybody doing this if society valued it, because it was Mm -hmm. otherwise a really hefty burden on the business. And the smaller the business, the heftier the burden. And also if we're then going to say, and if your business is under a certain amount, you don't have to do it all. It's like, well, don't those people have babies? Of course they have babies. You know, it, Mm -hmm. it just didn't seem uh, sensible. I didn't answer your last question about what what tactical things should people do to support well-being and mental health in the workplace. So one of the things that I think about as we have this opportunity right now to reassess how we work and the investments that we make in work, I am encouraging everyone to take a look at all of their overhead costs and say, if we are changing the fundamental structures of the ways that we work, how do we rethink what we invest in. So if we were investing in a ton of physical footprint, of physical space, could we then think about bifurcating that into two things? One, more opportunities for people to gather locally to establish those connections, more uh, offsites and moments for people to connect deeply, more professional development. So learning opportunities, People are way more likely to stay at an organization to feel like they're thriving and they're growing if they're learning, if they feel like they're invested in, et cetera. And then also taking a look at, is there any of that budget that we could potentially 
repurpose for mental health stipends, because that is something that I think is just one of the most valuable investments that people can make in themselves and organizations can make in their people. We had this great, or, you know, change all of a sudden, everything changed on a dime and it proved that everything could change on a dime and everything could be rethought. And none of the old habits, you know, if you were forced to change them, things could change. And so we're in this glorious potential time where they, everything could be rethought as per this last suggestion of yours. And do you think that there's a window for that? Like if you don't do that reinvention kind of now that you might've missed it. I do. I mean, there's a lot of research that backs up that you need a really significant what's called perturbation um, in order to influence real significant systemic change. And this is, this is our opportunity to rethink how we work. And Mm. If we, as we talk to organizations, we're challenging them to say, it's really not about returning to the way you were working before, but it's about taking this moment where everything is brought into perspective to redesign, to actively rethink what do we want to optimize for and what do we want to minimize? Like organizational design and cultural design, it's all a set of choices and there's pros and cons associated with every single choice you make. And each thing that you optimize for, you bring more of, and that has an equal, um, cost as well. So you just need to consider those and think about what kind of organization and context do you want to design? Fantastic. I love it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciated the conversation. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking our production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.